Good morning, 10 minutes after 5 o'clock on this Saturday morning and the beginning of what looks like a pretty nice weekend day here in the Chicagoland area. As I look at some of the headlines on my Reuters screen this morning, well, I get the daily count on the coronavirus situation because worldwide coronavirus cases has crossed 21,260,000. Death toll now stands at 759,000 as we continue our company with the coronavirus COVID-19 situation. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk about things more pleasant this morning. Uh, Jim Fazell will join us to talk about what makes sweet corn sweet and what is the situation with our sweet corn crop this year. And we're going to uh, check in with uh, our friends uh, Mike Pearson and uh, we'll also check in with, uh, he'll check in, I should say, with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial to talk about markets and what's going on in the agricultural community. And then we're going north of the border, Canada, because we've talked about a pretty good crop here south of the Canadian border, but they're also having a pretty good crop north of the Canadian border. So we'll talk to Harry Seaman a couple of things, the crop situation up there, but we'll also talk to him about conducting a crop tour virtually because they've done that now north of the border where they've uh, conducted a crop tour virtually and uh, have gotten pretty good indications that the crop is moving along and doing well and luckily north of the border they're not having the um, wildfire situation that they've had in years past so a lot of things to check in and talk about and i tell you what we'll get to uh, our visit with jim fazell when we continue here on this saturday morning show here we are in the sweet corn season and that's one of my favorite garden crops of the year so let's talk about sweet corn and some of the work that goes into developing the varieties we have jim fazell our specialist in ornamental horticulture here on the Saturday morning show with us. And have you had any sweet corn yet, Jim? I certainly have, Orion. I've been waiting for sweet corn. It's, it seems like it's a little late coming on the market, but we had a cold, wet spring again this year. Uh, some of the plantings got in early, but some didn't get in as early. And, of course, people that grow sweet corn uh, plant uh, over a period of months or weeks, actually, so that they have the crop coming in variously, especially if they're selling on farmers' markets or selling at roadside stands. They want the sweet corn to come in in batches by week. Now, if they're growing it for the wholesale market, then, of course, they want big batches. But anyway, it is important to to have it uh, coming in over the period of, uh, say, late July up into September, sometimes even to October before the season ends up. And, you know, it's very interesting. Why is sweet corn sweet? Uh, maybe when you were a kid, too, and, and when I was a kid down on the farm, we'd visit the farm in the summertime, just about the time that the field corn was was uh, too immature to dent. And we'd sneak out in the field and grab a couple of ears, and, you know, it was sweet. Yes. Doesn't stay that way, doesn't stay that way very, 
way very long. But field corn has sugar in it as well. Uh, of course, what we what we use as sweet corn is genetically um, uh, designed to have a, a gene in it that that increases the sweetness by the amount of sugar and slightly retards uh, how soon it, de- it deteriorates. Now, the old standard varieties, the gene was really just mostly for sweetness and for creamy texture, and as soon as you picked this stuff, it used to deteriorate very quickly. And We used to say you had to have the pot boiling before you picked it and pop it in the pot before the sugar turned to starch. That's why uh, old sweet corn was sweet until you, until you let it sit a day, and then it was no longer sweet. Well, the new sweeter varieties have been genetically bred so that they maintain the sweetness over a period of time. The first one of these that came out was called Sugary Enhancer. It produced uh, more sugar in the kernels and still maintained the creamy, creamy texture. The conversion to starts was retarded in these, and they were very good for home gardens. Uh, some of the names were probably some folks are familiar with things like peaches and cream and candy corn. These were varieties that were very popular when that first came out. Then we had some big break in the in the sweetness of these called the super sweet varieties. And actually, Illini Super Sweet was one of the first of these. In fact, it may have been the first developed right down here at Champaign by by uh, a couple of fellows that were in the veg crops department down there. I used to know them uh, many, many, many years ago, but they developed this thing called Super Sweet, and they did that by by crossing various varieties until they got varieties that had a lot of sweetness to them. One of the things they gave up with that was the creamy texture. These kernels are crisp, and you'll notice that nowadays the kernels aren't really very creamy on most kinds of, of sweet corn. And there were some other varieties uh, other than Illini Super Sweet, and some of them are still around. Now we get to this thing that we call the triple sweets. Now these are combinations of the old standard varieties, the sugary enhancer varieties, and the the uh, super sweet varieties. And this is done by crossing and back crossing. And as you know, the corn that we get in the field, those kernels that we get in the field, are not like what was planted. They're actually pollinated by a completely different variety. Those of us who are familiar with the farms know about going out and detasseling corn. Well, that's one of the things they do on some of these varieties so that the crosses are actually what they intend them to be. That's particularly true in growing seed corn. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about this phenomenon called Mirai. Actually, I'd been waiting this spring for Mirai to come on the market. Never came. And that's kind of sad because this has really been a phenomenon. You know, this, this variety was developed by the Hayes out at Harvard, Illinois, and uh, at Twin Gardens Farms out there. And you and I have both been out there and kind of gotten to know these people over the years. It was developed about 30 years ago. It's a hybrid that combines the three main types, the sugary, the SU sugary, the sugary enhancer, and the sunken. Now, these are genetically modified not by gene splicing, but by laboriously going back and crossing and recrossing the old-fashioned way. And that's really good because that's, that, that uh, means that anybody, even if you're kind of adverse to, to genetically modifying, which I don't happen to be, but a lot of people are, and that's fine. So it was, uh, that's the way these things have been produced. Now, the thing about Mirai, uh, it was probably the first one on this, of, of those on this market, and it was developed particularly 
for uh, the Japanese market. Interestingly enough, uh, the breeding was done out in Colorado by some by some hybridizers out there. But this has been going on for about 30 years, and it's been a phenomenon. It's probably the most popular and most demanded sweet corn that's ever been grown. It had a 30-year run of being the number one. It is uh, thing, the thing that people ask for, sweet corn that they ask for by name. They look for it to come in. And the, the problem right now is that time passes, and they are no longer going to produce Mirai. It's an old variety, still an excellent variety. But as far as I know, there are no growers that are really growing it anymore. And I know that Twin Farms out there really has gone out of the business. They are still producing seed corn, but they're not growing sweet corn. I think it was kind of a, a sideline, and uh, I, I talked to... Um, to, uh, oh gosh, I can't Andy. think of the name. Andy Hayes out there uh, last week. Why do I forget names, Orion? Does that have to do with our age? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I talked to Andy, and he said that the uncles were in their mid-70s now, and they didn't want to work that hard. You know, I can, I can understand that. Farming is tough, back-breaking work. Even if you're kind of watching it, it's tough, back-breaking and mind-boggling work. So they've decided to retire. I believe that uh, that production has been sold to another organization. Uh, I don't know who that is. I think it's still going to be a, a seed corn production out there, but they're not going to produce Mirai. Now, all is not lost, because while Mirai was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful variety, when that happens, every other breeder in the country says, oh, gosh, we've got to get in on that bag wagon, bandwagon. And sure enough, that's what's happened. Uh, there are a lot of varieties out there that replace this. Uh, Honey Select was the latest All-America selection. Uh, another one called Serendipity. Interesting names for, for uh, there's one that's really an interesting name. It always catch, uh, it catches my attention. It's called Gotta Have It. That's the <laughs> of this triple sweet, sweet corn. <clears throat> now, when you go out to buy the corn, you can ask if they have me, Ryan. They may have. Uh, I'm not sure that it's not being grown. Some people may have been able to get some seed for it. But you need to ask uh, the people where you buy this, particularly at the farmer's markets, and they'll know what variety they're growing. Uh, ask them if it's one of the super sweet varieties or if it's one of the triple sweet varieties. Both of those are going to be very sweet. Uh, another question I get in addition to when are we going to get Mirai is what difference does the yellow and white make? Well, there were several several different selections of Mirai. I guess you'd call them varieties. Uh, and one of them was bicolor. That's always been my favorite. The difference between white and yellow, yellow kernels are generally larger. It's just a personal preference. They taste about as good, and both of them are really good. Now, one last thing. When you're buying fresh corn, fresh uh, sweet corn in in uh, the husk, make sure that the husks are green and fresh and soft. If they're dried up on the end, that's probably something you don't want to buy. should have good green color. Also, in the farmer's markets now, they're not going to let you go out and touch the stuff, look at it, but you can't touch. And generally, they're going to have one of their, one of their people pick it out for you. You can tell them that uh, you want something that's well done, which is what we want. Make sure that it's full to the tip. Have them feel to make sure that it's filled all the way to the tip inside the husk. And even if you can, reach out and grab a, uh, a cob of this stuff or, uh, and, and you want to husk it, don't do that. That just makes it dry out. And if you put it back, somebody else is going to have it. Uh, and think it's good when it won't be. You don't need to, to husk them to find out whether that cob is going to be good or not. 
Using sweet corn, uh, use it the same way we always have. I don't think you need to get the pot going before you bring the corn in to put it in the pot. It keeps very well in the refrigerator with these new super sweet hybrid uh, varieties. So you don't need to worry about that, but be sure that you get good fresh corn. A couple of ways you can do it. I I just want to mention my favorite way of doing sweet corn now is in the microwave. And one of the things I always hated was husking it and then trying to get all the silks out of that cob. No, you don't have to do that. If you microwave it in the ear for three or four minutes, cut the base off so that you can pull that husk all the way out. It comes out in one piece, takes all the silks with it. How nice. For one or two years, it works real well. So well, I, I, that's the I, corn for today. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the field corn that uh, we grew on the farm for livestock. But, yeah, we'd go out and uh, buy the field corn and grow the field corn, and we'd boil it, and uh, we'd go ahead and eat it, even though it wasn't what we would consider a sweet corn today. But it was even good as field corn. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, we used to, used to do it on the fly, and Graham would say, you've been out there picking corn again. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but we did. It was fun. Uh, I Unfortunately, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I certainly had access to the farm because my grandfather down in Litchfield, Illinois, had a farm down there. Even though he didn't farm it, he had tenants that did farm it, so we got the experience every summer. Couldn't have been better. Learned uh, the value of hard work and uh, accomplishing things as a kid that uh, grew up to uh, tell us how to do things with the flowers and the vegetables and the sweet corn. So There you go. We will look forward to uh, visiting with you next week, but in the meantime, we'll have some sweet corn between now and then, and you do the same. Our visit with Jim Fazell, specialist in ornamental horticulture, here on the Saturday Morning Show. We're at uh, 26 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. Temperature outside my studio in Huntley, Illinois, 63 degrees, and it looks like start of a pretty good day, and uh, we may get some rain and thunderstorms a little bit later this weekend, but uh, I don't, at least I hope, we don't go through what we did at the beginning of this week, because that, I, I learned a new word. The word is deratio. D-E-R-E-C-H-O, deratio. I didn't uh, know the meaning of the word. Hadn't encountered it before, so I called the National Weather Service, and they said deratio is not quite a hurricane, but it's a straight wind kind of a storm, unlike a tornado, which touches down here and there. And it did a tremendous amount of damage across a pretty big stretch of the Midwest. Started as a thunderstorm in South Dakota, moved eastward, and it kept its strength uh, for 700 miles. It finally started to weaken when it got to Ohio. But before it got there, it flattened a lot of the cornfields, and it also... uh, provided uh, damage to buildings and particularly to grain bins. 
So uh, that's something I hope we don't have to put up with again. But we do have the hurricane planes going out over the Atlantic because there is a storm in the Atlantic, but it's moving up the East Coast, and let's hope it stays up the East Coast. So uh, the one thing that we cannot control, weather, and uh, that is such an important ingredient in producing whatever the crop might be, but also in producing the feed we need for livestock that we enjoy as humans and so it's always a challenge for people who put a seed in the ground and hope that god will give it rain and sunshine and produce food for livestock and for human beings i had a great evening last night dinner at jameson's at their outdoor patio which is open because of the COVID-19. It's not an indoor service uh, at the moment, but it is outdoor on the patio overlooking the golf course. And so to those of you who were in the uh, restaurant on the patio last night, who has said hello, uh, we thank you for that, and we thank you for supporting the folks at Jameson's, one of our good advertisers here on WGN Radio. So uh, we keep an eye on hurricanes, we keep an eye on COVID-19, and we hope that we will not have any damaging weather in the future as we move into the harvest season so that uh, those crops that are so important to your well-being and my well-being will make their way to maturity and uh, be able to, again, provide that source of nutrition that our farmers and ranchers put together so well. 5.30 here on the Saturday morning show, and it's time for Samuelson Says... I'm Orion, and uh, this week I want to talk about a long time saying, don't fool with Mother Nature. I'm going to talk about something that none of us talk about ever, weather. I think 90% of us probably talk about it just about every day, and maybe 100% of those of us who are involved in agriculture. But the reason I want to do it is I learned a new word this week. The new word is derecho, spelled D-E-R-E-C-H-O. And I had to check with the National Weather Service to get a definition, so let me share it with you so you can learn the word too. A derecho is not quite a hurricane. It has no eye, and its winds come across in a straight line. But the damage it is likely to do spread over such a large area is more like an inland hurricane than a quick, more powerful tornado. That's according to Patrick Marsh, who is with the National Weather Service's Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma. So the storm I'm talking about that hit the early part of last week began as separate thunderstorms in South Dakota, and then it started moving east and it strengthened over Iowa. It held together for 770 miles over 14 hours before losing strength as it entered western Ohio. 
and in Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds said that it created a lot of destruction. She estimated 10 million acres were damaged in the nation's top corn-producing state, and many grain bins were destroyed. They were empty, ready for this year's harvest, and therefore didn't have the strength to withstand the strong winds that came at more than 100 miles an hour. It was quite a storm. And we still aren't done measuring the amount of damage or the financial impact, but there's no question that there is a lot of loss for farmers, not only from stored grain, but also from the bins to store the grain. So I guess once more, it's proof to the old saying, don't fool with Mother Nature. And then I would add to that the saying, don't measure your total crop until it's in the bin. Good luck to those of you who suffered losses, and may you recover. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. 27 minutes before 6 o'clock news time here on WGN Radio Chicago, and we talk at least we have talked a great deal this year about ideal crop weather here in the U.S. until this past week when the storm moved across the Midwest. But uh, our friends to the north in Canada are pretty much looking at the same kind of a good crop because of the weather that we've had for crop development. It's been really one of the bright spots this year in this COVID-19 kind of a year. So anyway, we did have the opportunity to talk to our longtime farm broadcaster friend from uh, Manitoba, Canada. Talked to him uh, for some length this week, and uh, we want to share that conversation with you when we continue here on the Saturday morning show. Well, let's go north of the border to find out what's happening agriculturally in Canada. For that, we turn to Harry Siemens, who has been a friend, a fellow farm broadcaster, a communicator for agriculture for years. And first of all, do the Canadians still love us, or are they upset with us, Harry? What's the word? Well, you know, depending on who you talk to, you know, we have our own struggles with our own prime minister here in Canada, and uh, but at the same time... Uh, Yes, uh, there are things like, uh, you know, now the different tariffs and different things. Uh, uh, you know, we in agriculture, uh, we love you because even though we have COVID-19, we have been able to get across the border, meaning we uh, collectively, as far as our products and our farmers and our truckers are concerned. So uh, that part of it is, is awesome. I mean, we continue to, to move across that border as, uh, as we see fit. Uh, and uh, so that part of it is good. But when you talk to the general public, you know, they we have our own struggles. But at the same time, funny how they continue to blame everything uh, that happens in Canada on uh, President Trump. So uh, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, we will. Yeah, that's as far as we'll go politically because that's a constant discussion here south of the border. But the thing that made me uh, give you a call was a reference you sent me that you had taken a virtual crop tour, and that intrigued me. How do you take a virtual crop tour? Well, you know, a 
a little bit of a misnomer, but at the same time, not so, because uh, we have a company that, uh, at the marketing company across Western Canada called FarmLink. And, uh, and they have, for the last couple of years, taken farm tours where they get two, three, four people in a vehicle. And around the last two weeks of July, uh, some of them may not know each other. They randomly select fields across Western Canada and uh, count the count the, the the kernels, count the crops, and and come up with an assessment and a projection. This year, they called it a virtual crop tour because they couldn't get people uh, into the car. They could only go one person at a time, as far as the COVID nineteen restrictions are concerned. So what they did is they took all their marketing analysts and marketing representatives, and they had them right across. Western Canada from Manitoba to the Peace River country and so forth. And instead of going with farmers and with other people, they got the permission from the farmers to go into their crops. And in some cases, they did some counting, but it kind of took the random sampling away. They had to go through, uh, uh, you know, Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They had to get everything all lined up in order to do it properly. But in the meantime... The virtual part of it is they would talk to the farmers. They would look at the field, talk to the farmer and say, how do you see it? And what was it last year? What was it the year before? So that they could compare notes as to what the, the crop looked like. And uh, that's the, the part of the virtual. It, it didn't stop them. And that was the key. And as Neil uh, Townsend, who's the chief uh, uh, senior analyst with that company, told me in an interview, he said, Harry, we were not expecting to see that good a crop. We saw record to near record crops right across Western Canada, not specifically in some areas we've had weather events, but in the meantime, Orion, we're looking together with our Durham wheat and red spring wheat at, at maybe harvesting over 31 million metric tons. And that's a, that's a, that would be a record for Canada. Well, we're talking records here in the U.S. as well, because until this week when we had a storm that moved 700 miles across the Midwest, we had a great crop, but we lost a little bit of our crop this past week. As far as the marketing of the Canadian crops, how is that progressing? Well, it's, uh, it's similar. That's why I said right at the beginning, we are more than delighted and, and absolutely required the border to remain open when it came to essential services like hauling crops across the border. We are so dependent on, on what is happening in the United States. As you know, our markets are based off the Chicago Board of Trade and also in Minneapolis, and those are the prices and so forth. But uh, we have had record uh, crop movement also to, to the Western Canadian ports, and here's the reason why. The trains move all kinds of product when things are good. When COVID-19 hit, all the other uh, product, especially oil and, and the goods, you know, just back right off. So they were able to have record movements, Canadian National Railways and Canadian Pacific Railways, keep telling us they're moving record amounts of grain to the West Coast. And from the West Coast, of course, it goes throughout the world. But, you know, we've had our challenges uh, with canola in China, but at the same time, 
at this point, uh, you know, things things are moving. Uh, obviously, we'd love to see uh, better prices, but at this point, the farmers are probably more focused on getting a record or near record crop into the bins because the bin manufacturers are, are working overtime in order to get more bins out there. So uh, the marketing continues to, to work. Prices could be better. But you know what? I'm so happy and blessed that I'm involved, like you, in agriculture, because as you've always told me, agriculture is such a pleasure serving agriculture, the basic industry. It is a basic industry, not only for Canada, the United States, but for the world. And uh, we're fortunate enough to serve farmers and producers in an area where, as you say, you're looking at record crops. We were looking at a record crop. I don't know what we'll be down to now. But yes, a pleasure to do that. And uh, from government policy, a quick question, uh, how are Canadian farmers dealing with the agricultural policy put forth by the government. You know, that's uh, that's been a real sad part of it. You know, we have uh, uh, Justin Trudeau as our prime minister in the Liberal government, and, and then we have a minority government in Ottawa with the other parties. And so <laughs> somehow we can't get them to really... Uh, hand out, uh, not hand out, I'm not, that's not, to support the agriculture industry. It's been really lacking, especially in the livestock, because there's a real uh, push, uh, you know, at, at in kind of pushing the livestock part down, you know, and so forth. And, uh, and so we haven't had the kind of support. And then when we see the supports that maybe your, your farmers are getting in the, in your country, uh, you know, it's it's really been a challenge. But at the same time, you know, we have, uh, you know, as you know, the farmers are the salt of the land and they continue to do. But the support has not been forthcoming the way the other sectors and the other industries and, and other people have been getting. Well, we're about out of time. Uh, out of time. When will you get your final production figures for this year? Do does that come in January or when? We start to look at the production figures probably in in October, November, so forth. You know where they where they keep uh, where they project the kind of uh, crop that's out there, uh, other than in addition to what I've just told you. But the government comes up with those numbers, some preliminary numbers sometime in the fall, and then January we get more. Harry, you take care of yourself. Be safe. Be well. Look out for COVID-19, and we'll visit again soon. So thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. Always a pleasure, my good friend, Orion. It is 63 degrees at my studio in Huntley, Illinois, at uh, 12 minutes before 6 o'clock. Here on WGN Radio, as always, we are happy to have you along. And I'm about uh, three weeks away from my 60th year on the air here at WGN. And so thank you for your support and your loyalty as listeners and your comments and additions to the things that we talk about. We really appreciate those of you who are with us throughout the day here on WGN Radio Chicago. And uh, we have to take a look at what happened in some of the markets this week agriculturally. And for that, we're going to talk to our farm broadcaster friend, Mike Pearson. 
people to help us make sense of what's happening in the world of livestock. Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services joining us. Dennis, thanks for taking the time today. You're back. Let's kick it off. One of the challenges I think the beef industry has been facing is the higher weights of, of uh, fat cattle heading to slaughter than we've seen in years past. Does it seem like the industry is getting that under control? Well, we're getting more current, especially in the north. Numbers in Nebraska actually somewhat tight uh, as we're, we're getting into the hole that was created by the sharp downturn in placements that occurred last spring. We still have a lot of cattle in the south, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, and that's where the heavier weights are. We are running excessively, uh, approximately 30 to 35 pounds above a year ago. And quite frankly, that's probably going to remain the case as uh, the premium structure Futures Board is now encouraging the slowdown in marketings, shifting marketings from August into September, and that's going to keep weight on the cattle, we believe. Yeah, it certainly will. And with the slaughter pace that has been accelerating, in fact, it's it been fairly recently, we were caught up with last year's slaughter pace with 35 pounds more per animal. I got to imagine we're getting a little nervous about tonnage of beef heading out the backside of those processing facilities. Yeah, we've been running a kill down 1%, 2%, almost even with a year ago, but with the weights up 4% or more, you're seeing beef production, actual production, a little bit above a year ago. Uh, looking ahead, we're, we're looking for weights to remain heavy. We're looking for placements to begin to accelerate now, uh, which will kind of back up against the December and first quarter. And, and then we'll see uh, exactly uh, what the tonnage situation is going to be. USDA just projected production next year up 2% from this year, which I believe would be record large. Dennis, when it comes to the challenges that we all face with COVID, what are you seeing on the side of beef demand, especially as we're getting kids back to school in some places and restaurants coming back around? What are you seeing there when it comes to demand? Uh, Chad, a total frustration, I guess, is, is what I see. This thing will not let go. The, the virus just, just will not go away. It, it's a challenge for everybody in, in almost every aspect of living. Uh, the National Restaurant Association just this morning told us that uh, in Illinois, 20% of the restaurants will never reopen. And this is damaging the food service industry, and it's going to take uh, months if not a couple of years to recover this demand. So from that perspective, the COVID perspective, it is not a positive outlook. So with that being the case, uh, COVID headlines are going to continue to move beef prices around, aren't they? COVID headlines are going to continue to disrupt demand in a lot of different ways, and it'll continue to be a challenge, uh, both in the export market, as we've seen some, some possible problems uh, coming out of Brazil to China, and domestically, it'll continue to be a, a, an awful challenge, especially at the restaurant level. Dennis, let's talk about pork. You can't talk about pork without talking about China. And wow, it just seems like week after week, the headlines keep coming. Lately, there's a conversation about a lot of flooding in the region. What's the latest? 
Now, the Chinese flooding is contributing to the spread of African swine fever. So that situation in China remains a major problem. It, it remains a, a spreading problem. And, and I think it's going to keep China in our market, not only for weeks to come, but hopefully for months to come uh, as they continue to battle that disease. And, and we are clear of the disease. And we've got the best quality, uh, highest quality pork in the world. And of course, we're also looking at record large production. So we are available to China and that business should continue. Well, Dennis, when you look out at uh, what is going on with China, we had some cancellations earlier to, or on Thursday, rather, and um, they've been a pretty strong importer of pork for the better part of the past year. Is it coming to an end? Yeah, uh, the cancellations are extremely uh, unpredictable, and, and, and in fact, uh, we don't really understand why and how they choose to do a cancellation. I think the other important uh, aspect is the shipment portion. Uh, they were large shipments they, uh, behind Mexico. They were the second largest shipper of pork in the previous week. So uh, the confusion over the cancellations is concerning, but I think you can count on China staying in our pork market uh, for the weeks to come, and as I said, hopefully for the months to come yet. Well, and that certainly seems to be borne out in recent uh, trade announcements, uh, export sales being one of them, but also the fact that we have had China ban imports of pork from a number of processing facilities around the world, but as far as I'm aware, not yet in the U.S. due to COVID. Is that something we can uh, maybe count as a a tailwind for the industry that's been struggling since uh, March? So far, we have benefited from that. Uh, I think the, the move out of China has uh, got a lot of political reasons fight behind it, and and that could always come and come and come back against us uh, as the relations with China and the U.S. Are, are not good. In fact, they appear to worsen each day. Uh, but so far, we're on the right side of it. Uh, business is good as far as export business to China and the pork. They're working toward a phase one deal, uh, trying to meet their agreement. And I think the pork will continue to benefit. With all of that being said, Dennis, what are your short-term price targets for the lean hog markets? Well, I'm concerned about price direction, and that's primarily from a domestic standpoint versus a a supply production standpoint. We're looking for uh, the fall hog runs to to begin shortly, and I I think the the production in the fall time frame will be probably 3% larger than a year ago, and we're still waiting through the backlog of hog numbers from from the uh, COVID slaughter problems that we had. We still have a labor problem at the packing plants, and that's affecting the boning lines. So we have an excessive supply of bone-in ham. So I'm looking for some lower prices with a major low around the middle of November. All right. Well, challenges lie ahead. Dennis, thanks for bringing us up to speed. I want to remind you again that this unusual COVID-19 summer has totally disrupted the schedule for county and state fairs just aren't any and if there are they're basically virtual county fairs but uh, don't look for county fairs at many places between now and the end of the county fair season that's our time here on the saturday morning show as always i thank uh, bob ferguson the engineer who keeps everything going